Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Thursday, June 18th here in New York City. Hope everyone is doing well, that they are staying safe and healthy as we continue to confront the coronavirus pandemic. Coming up today on the podcast is an interview I recorded earlier tonight with my old AAU coach, the CEO and founder of Basketball Stars of New York and the head boys basketball coach at the Dwight School in New York City, Dave Brown. Uh, It was a really great conversation, great, great interview, so I hope you guys all enjoy that. Before we get to the interview, I want to again encourage all my New York City listeners to go online to vote.org, figure out your registration status. We have the upcoming primary on June 23rd. It is paramount and crucial that everyone votes, even though it feels like, hey, you know, it seems like Joe Biden's going to win New York. Donald Trump is going to win New York in the primary for the general election for the Republicans and the Democrats. As we have seen, it's not just the presidential election that matters. It's all the candidates all the way down the ticket. It's a lot of times the local elections at these primaries. You can determine who's going to be on the ballot come November in these local and state elections that are so crucial in creating the change that we want to see in our country. So Highly encourage everyone to do that and to go out and vote on June 23rd. So uh, I'm going to hit the music, and when we come back is my interview from earlier tonight with the head boys basketball coach at the Dwight School, Dave Brown. Joining me today on the podcast is a very special guest, the head boys basketball coach at the Dwight School on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, Dave Brown, a native of New York City. He won two nice ace basketball championships in high school before earning a scholarship to play at Colgate. After two years at Colgate, Coach Coach Brown transferred to Connecticut College in the NESCAC where he completed his basketball and academic degrees. After graduation, he had one-year assistant coaching jobs at John Jay College and the Collegiate School on the Upper West Side of Manhattan before joining Five Star Basketball as their Director of Development in the winter of 2003. He later joined the coaching staff at Susquehanna University in the fall of of 2005, where he coached for three seasons before joining the New Jersey Nets Marketing Division. After three years with the Nets, Coach Brown ventured off on his own and launched his own youth basketball organization, Basketball Stars of New York. In his role as founder and CEO, the organization has grown from humble beginnings to now serving thousands of New York City kids each year in their travel basketball programs, summer camps, and individualized training programs. In addition to running Basketball Stars, he was named the head boys basketball coach at his alma mater, the Dwight School, in the fall of 2013 and has won three state championships in his seven years at the helm, including back-to-back wins in 2014 and 2015. Coach Brown is also my old AAU coach, boss, and friend. I am so pumped and excited he is taking the time to join me tonight. Coach, how's it going? It's amazing. That was some uh, introduction, Dave. Thanks for having me. Of course. So before we kind of get into your background, I think you have perhaps the most interesting and envious uh, quarantine setup. So can you kind of talk about where you are right now and how uh, that all unfolded the, the way it did? Of course, it was about March 3rd or 
4th, and my daughter's birthday party was scheduled for March 16th, and we were about to head on spring break for March 17th, so we had to make the difficult decision to cancel her birthday party on the 16th, at which point we were issued a refund, and my wife decided to tell me that she's going to spring break a week early with the refund money and taking my daughter with her (laughs) on March 10th. So about three days later, I said, you might have to come home. She's like, I'm not coming home. Come here. So I got on a plane, came to Aruba, and when everybody started to freak out on the island and leave to come back to the States, we decided to stay. And we've been one of a handful of U.S. citizens enjoying Aruba all to ourselves the past three and a half months. So That's awesome. Brown family, 84, coronavirus, 53. (laughs) (laughs) Unbelievable. Not so far. Uh, unbelievable. So, so as I mentioned at the top, you grew up in New York City. How did you first just get involved with the game of basketball? Um, I my earliest recollections was playing in Big Apple youth baseball, and the gentleman that ran the league was just a fabulous, fabulous man and teacher of sports to kids and he put together a basketball team and we played like a handful of games before there was real AAU and I just wanted more and more and more and then over the over the summers at camp you know I was one of the stronger players at the bubble camp I was at and you know the more and more I played the more and more success I had because I was stronger and bigger and taller than most of the kids and I just developed a love for the sport so you're the that's the start. So, so you're at Riverdale uh, in the ninth grade, which is an, an elite New York City private school. You're playing on the varsity team as as a ninth grader, and you guys go on to win the state championship. Just what was that like? It's a little generous. It's a little generous of a characterization to say that I was on the varsity team. Okay, how would you describe it? The, the JV team. For, okay, uh, I was a member of the JV team. And we had won 15 out of 16 games that year. And at the end of the season, they brought up a couple of players. Gotcha. I was able to be a part of the team and, you know, see us win the championship and go upstate and all that. So well, that's I don't also- want to misrepresent myself. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, well, um, well, it ap- was a great experience. Well, after that championship year at Riverdale, you transferred to the Dwight School, which – you had a rather unique situation at Dwight basketball-wise as your high school coach, uh, I think maybe, I think it was your junior or senior year, was Pee Wee Kirkland, who was a New York City street ball and high school basketball legend, was drafted by the Chicago Bulls, I think in 1969. And yet, with all of his basketball success, he also had uh, you know, a troubled background as he spent 10 years in prison after being convicted of uh, tax evasion and selling narcotics and kind of he was rebuilding his life uh, coaching basketball was a motivational speaker when he, when he came to Dwight just what was it like having Pee Wee Kirkland as your high school basketball coach it was easily by far the most unique coach I've ever had in my life he was as much a motivator as he was a coach and he was as much an individual skills trainer and as good as anyone I've ever seen. Um, and he would just preached and preached and preach, you know, your effort. And he would teach you little parts of the game within the game that I've never seen another coach actually teach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, 
And it wasn't as much about the drills that we would do. It was just about the little nuances of the games. You know, how to get through screens faster, how to get somebody off of you and create space for yourself in ways that, you know, at the time I remember thinking, like, is this what NBA, where do NBA guys learn this? Because you just don't get that type of instruction at the high school, elementary, AAU level, period. Um, At least back then. For sure. And... Um, it was a trip. It was a trip. He was definitely a different, uh, a different breed. And New York City private schools were not ready for him. <laughs> yeah, as you know, as you mentioned, New York City private schools kind of are unique in a lot of ways. It's you know very different going to school in New York City versus really anywhere else in the country. And in recent years, you know, they they get portrayed a certain way on on TV with TV shows like Gossip Girl and everything. And just what was it like? just growing up and going to high school in Manhattan uh, as like a high school student playing basketball? Um, It was, you know, a big part of your identity. You know, being an athlete in high school, you'd be, you know, classified as, I would say, a jock. But there's Mm -hmm. also the other side of it. You know, the socioeconomic differences within the school are really, you know, I wouldn't say magnified, but, you know, at the end of the spectrum, they're just, tremendous um you're not dealing with guys that are well off you're dealing with some of the wealthiest of the wealthiest people in the world yeah you know and when you're interacting with them you're just seeing a different life and seeing like 14 15 year old kids you know we went to school with paris hilton who lived on the penthouse in the waldorf storia you know with (laughs) parents going around um, just a wild you know wild difference from you know what public school was like when i was younger um, you just don't see that every day, but yeah, it's th- that's definitely you your other different clicks. But that's definitely that's definitely crazy, Paris Hilton. So you guys are going into your senior year, and you're getting ready for, for the senior year of high school. How are you preparing to go out on top? Because everyone wants to go out on top their their senior year but but what were you guys doing whether it's in preseason or at the beginning of the season where you guys kind of knew hey this group can kind of do something special well we were trained by an olympic silver medalist judo champion named radimir kovacevic who um actually his legacy lives on at poly prep now i believe their strength and conditioning coach is one of his disciples okay the story isn't often told except by those that know him very well um you know, he really cared about the individual. He was the smartest person I ever met. Um, he was the most caring and real person I ever met. And he was just as well-read a human being as I have ever met. Wow. And this is all at six foot six and 300 pounds, you know, big, bullish, bear type, um, <laughs> who can undress you by staring at you in a heartbeat. And he also the fear he could instill in you and the motivation just to, you know, make him proud was unparalleled to any coach person I've ever been around. And he prepared us in the preseason with a really unorthodox training schedule compared to what you would see in most basketball programs. This was not like go running around the reservoir. This was, you know, carrying logs and lifting logs over our shoulders. Um, doing push-up with, with kids on our backs. So kind of like Rocky Four Playing court basketball games. Yeah, just, I mean, he was, 
I don't want to, I don't, I believe he was Serbian, but you uh-huh. know, yeah, he was Serbian, not Croatian. I know they get very upset if you don't distinguish the two, <laughs> but you know, just these, you know, very challenging drills and workouts. Um, and then on the days where we would see him, we'd have our preseason workouts with Pee Wee, who just had no sympathy for <laughs> any sort of pain or any sort of concerns about you know, how long the workout's going for. There were days where, you know, I remember us training, running laps around the reservoir, and, you know, we'd run four or five laps. Like, he had us running eight, nine miles. You know, oh, my God. So out of shape, the idea of running four miles was crazy. But um, running the stairs in school for two and a half hours straight until you, you know, and there was no stopping. Yeah. But, you know, they worked us out really hard. Our main competition was probably at the time St. Anne's was a really strong team. Um, and Adelphi Academy had the likes of Desmond Harrod, who went on to UNLV at Seton Hall, and uh, Manga Charles, I believe, as well, um, who played at Seton Hall. So the private schools were pretty loaded, not to mention uh, Ian McGinnis from Collegiate, who led the nation in rebounding. Yeah. And, you know, they had four or five other six for four kids who never seemed to miss a shot. So <laughs> we had to take down both of them on the way to winning. And it was, uh, it was a great run. It was a great run. Great team. Great bunch of guys. So you win that second state championship in high school, your senior year, and you earn a scholarship to go play at Colgate University in upstate New York. Just what was your recruiting process like overall? And kind of how did you end up choosing Colgate? So, um, I didn't have a ton of Division One schools recruiting me, just a handful, but I had about 150 Division Three schools that were calling um, regularly, and I was getting mail all the time. It was one of the more enjoyable processes I had <laughs> uh, being recruited. Um, I remember Wagner was really interested in recruiting me. Um, Weber State, which was a school, I believe, in Utah that I had never heard of, had started recruiting me, and I didn't hear them until uh, I didn't really take notice until my freshman year of college when they took down um, the University of North Carolina in the NCAA tournament. I yeah. thought I might have made the wrong decision, but um, the coaches, the head coach of Colgate, showed up at my house with two assistant coaches to meet with me and my parents, and Pee Wee Kirkland was in the room, and I'll never forget. We sat down and Coach Bruin, who, you know, since passed my freshman year, said, so, uh, you know, what are you interested in, you know, getting out of college? And I'm about to start talking and Pee Wee interrupted the whole conversation. He's like, before I said a word, he's like, look, Coach, is he coming there to start or not? And I was just like <laughs> mortified. Um, but... You know, I had already taken a visit to the school and he was showing up at my house to kind of like close the deal. Yeah. And I said, and I'm like, coach, look, I'm willing to work for everything I get. You know, I just want to make sure I have a spot on the team. He's like, well, we wouldn't be giving you, you know, this type of scholarship if you didn't. And at the time they didn't have full scholarship. So, you know, I probably paid for three quarters of the education mm-hmm. and, you know, Colgate was his academic school that I was being recruited by. And, that was it. I signed the piece of paper then and there on the spot and didn't look back. 
So every August, Coach, we always hear uh, from people who have been in college for a while or have graduated about the roommate from hell type stories. It feels like every school has like this one uh, roommate situation that kind of everyone feels bad for. Uh, one of the most famous ones was allegedly uh, Ted Cruz. Uh, this came out during the 2016 election, but Ted Cruz's roommate uh, in college, apparently, uh, he was invited to parties by the seniors on campus because apparently everyone felt so bad for him that Ted Cruz was his roommate that they all took pity on him. <laughs> Did you have well, like, Thomas, bl- like like any type of uh, roommate from hell type situation when, when you were up at Colgate? I could tell you that um, there's some political connection to your anecdote, <laughs> and it starts with um, George Bush was very close friends with um, one of my two freshman year roommates and he had offered them their private plane to fly from Texas to Colgate and we hadn't met I hadn't met these guys obviously face to face I had one gentleman from Maine and one from Texas and you know my friend one night had come over to my house and back then used to get in the mail your uh, acceptance to the school with you know, a couple of sheets of paper and like what you should bring as a freshman and your roommate's names and phone numbers. And my friend came over, we went out one night, we were having a good time hanging out and he decided to prank call my roommate (laughs) that I had never met before. And he left like a really nasty, like teenage high school, like scary message, like, don't you come to school? This is my room. I want to be by myself. And, you know, I was hysterical laughing, didn't think anything of it. I get to school, the kid's there. He says something like, oh, I know it was you that left the message, but don't worry about it. It was pretty funny. My friends heard it. So we were laughing, and about 15 minutes into it, I realized there was a bunk bed and a third bed in the bedroom in our common area. And they had already taken the bottom beds, and I was not staying there. So I took my uh, (laughs) top bed into the the living room, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, sorry, guys, it's just the way it is. I'm not sleeping in a room with you two guys, and... I'm certainly not sleeping on the top bunk. I'm six foot seven, you know, 250 pounds. Uh, it's just not happening. And there's no TV in here. So I took my bed, put it in the living room. And this guy was like the most annoying guy who would like critique and critique and critique. And one night he walked in and he saw me spending some time with my girlfriend and was like mortified and ran out of the room and met with the RA. And we had to have a big meeting. Two weeks later, we just like got into a big fight, and it turns out he told me, you know what, I'm leaving this place anyway. And he transferred, you know, I think first semester of our freshman year or at the end of this, you know, midway through the second semester. And it never occurred to me, like, who he was or what he was doing until I'm watching uh, CNN or Fox News one day, and Richard Spencer, leader of, like, the Aryan Nation, God. <laughs> or some white supremacist was there and i'm like oh my god this was my uh freshman year roommate but oh my god not somebody i ever look forward into to bumping into again <laughs> jesus <laughs> that's i i think that takes the cake as the the biggest roommate from hell store you literally had a an <laughs> evil person as your freshman year roommate <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly so so after two years at Colgate, you end up transferring down to a Division three power at the time, Connecticut College. Can you kind of talk about uh, just kind of why you made that decision and just what the adjustment was like going from a Division one basketball program to a Division three one? 
Sure. Well, I mean, Colgate was a strong basketball program. It was, you know, on the coattails of the Donald Foyle years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a big drop off between the ninth pick in the NBA draft and me filling his shoes as a center, which never even materialized anyway. Um, my freshman year, I had a great freshman year, was really improving, getting stronger, ready to make a contribution for my sophomore season. Um, and my sophomore season, I got hurt, had to have surgery, and the Patriot League Freshman of the Year was our power forward. Mm -hmm. And it was abundantly clear at the start of my junior year that I was not going to get to play. So I decided to transfer and join two of my high school teammates at Connecticut College. They were coming off an NCAA championship game appearance. I think they went 30-1 and one the year before I came there. Yeah. Um, and they were one of the schools that were recruiting me. So I visited Trinity College um, and Connecticut College, and it was a no-brainer for me, mm -hmm. especially after Trinity wouldn't accept me. <laughs> <laughs> so just what were some of the differences in terms of, like, the basketball part of, like, uh, you know, you're playing pick up and practicing against D1 guys, and, and now you're playing uh, D3. Just like, what are some of the the basketball differences? Um, you know, the Division three programs didn't have those three day week individual workouts with the coaches. Yeah, um, it was more like captains' practices. So that was a big difference. You know, our strength and conditioning coach wasn't. Um, you know, was a track was the track coach at Colgate. Mm -hmm. Our strength and conditioning coach was, you know, a former offensive lineman at Nebraska who had us doing like one legged squats. <laughs> uh, I I would say that that was the biggest. You know, the strength and conditioning programs were interesting. There was a big drop off, but the guard play between the Patriot League and the NESCAC at that time, I didn't think. I thought my guards at Connecticut College were just as good as the ones at Colgate. Mm -hmm. um, the three and four men might have been a little bit more athletic in college, same with the big guys. But, yeah. you know, at the, at the Patriot League level, you had the six-foot-nine guys who played, you know, above the rim and the seven-footers who couldn't really walk and chew gum. <laughs> you know, the only difference in, in the NESCAC was the six foot nine guys were six-foot-six and six-foot-seven. Yeah. And the seven-footers were six-foot-ten. Right. But, um, you know, just a couple of inches. But in terms of ability, quality of play, I don't think there's a difference, except for those elite, elite Division One guys that you come across, maybe three or four in our league. So kind of as you're going through college, you're, you're now at college, you know, it's very common, like junior, senior year, everyone kind of starts thinking, thinking about and focusing on the future and what they're doing post-graduation. So it's like the favorite uh, question everyone loves to ask uh, college seniors is what are you doing after graduation kind of what were you thinking about uh as you were approaching graduation on what you're going to do as a career and you know was coaching uh a part of your your thought process at that time i wouldn't say so i was just delusional and i was not at all concerned with what i was doing after college i was just more concerned with actually uh graduating college <laughs> um i did not realize how difficult the real world was. I thought things just came a lot easier. And then, of course, you graduate and you find out what's what life's really like yeah. for um, going from college to being an adult. <laughs> uh, so you end up getting... 
you end up getting a coaching job though as an assistant at John Jay College in in New York City. What were just or what what were some of your responsibilities as an assistant coach there? Um, well, New York City High School basketball coach extraordinaire Teddy Frischling introduced me to Mike Brown, who was the head coach at the time um, of John Jay College. Told me to give him a buzz, which got me the job. Um, my responsibilities were basically any and everything. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it is coaching at the CUNY level in the uh, early 2000s was very, very difficult. Um, my boss at the time was not a full-time employee of the school, so he's coming in and out for practices, and, mm-hmm. you know, we barely had an office. So if I wanted to go recruit, go recruit. If you can get, you know, it was just as much like a luck of the draw, which kids are going to show up mm-hmm. and come to your school as which kids you were going to go out and get at that time. I was his only assistant. I was 20 years old. I didn't have, you know, any background knowledge of how to pick up uh, recruiting databases. You know, the Internet was really just coming of age then. Yeah. So it was, you know, make some phone calls, see some kids, go to some events and start talking to them. So I did do some scouting. I did do a lot of recruiting and I spent a lot of time working out with the kids and being that I was still living at home. I spent probably more hours at the school than my boss, but you know, it was a real, real um, wake up call to see everything that has to go into a successful program and just the differences between the top level division three schools and the CUNY schools and all the disadvantages you're at was really um, eye-opening. Interesting. So after one year at John Jay, you joined the staff at the collegiate school uh, working for the legendary Ray Vokel. Just what was that transition like going from college down to the high school level? And just what did you learn from Coach Vokel as you were still in the process of starting out your, your coaching career? It's a little muddy and wrecking in remembering, but I believe I coached both at the same time Okay. while I was working at five-star basketball. I think oh, the wow. three of them, all three jobs totaled to about like $180 a week <laughs> after gas. <laughs> but um, working for Coach Vokel was the first time I was really part of a, a true bas- high school basketball program that top to bottom operated the same way. Mm-hmm. Like they had kids in PE class in third and fourth grade doing drills to prepare them to middle school. Yeah. And it was just a build up all the way through high school. He had a, a tremendous program. It still does, you know, that's predicated on the same system of play that's been operating the school since I'm sure the late or early 1980s. Yeah. Um, so I got the sense of that. I also learned the discipline and, you know, how you can shape your program and play the certain way you wanted to regardless of the kids you have, even though, you know, it's not like collegiate is a rubber band of diversity, but, you know, he's been playing the same way every year and it works all the time, every year after year. Yeah, it is it is annoying as, as a former poly prep Blue Devil, our arch rival was collegiate. We got, you know, our butts handed to us multiple times from the same system and their crazy court and everything. It's a... They run everything so well that it can be very, very annoying at times. 
I will tell you that without working there, there's no way we would have won later on when I was coaching against them, having yeah. that experience and just seeing how they operated opened the door for me to understand it on another level that I ever could have having not been there. Yeah, and I want to get I want to get to that just in a little bit, but just for for those who don't remember who might be too young, five star basketball and their camps used to be by far the biggest summer basketball events of the summer instead of what is now like the Nike Peach Jam is kind of just the the centerpiece of the recruiting summer. All the top guys went to the five-star basketball camps, and it was where the top talent truly got to compete against one another and, and, and you know prove who was the best. You joined the staff as the director of development in 2003. What was it like working for such a legendary basketball organization? It was a phenomenal foundation of learning how to coach and teach, first of all. You mm-hmm. know, my first memory of it is just being thrown into the camp, running around, watching people teach. And like, I learned more in that than I did as a player. And that's not a knock on my coaches. It was just some of the best high school coaches and college coaches around were just teaching kids, you know, running them through drills and stations and, you know, working under those guys and getting to watch because I was a full-time employee of the organization was spectacular I mean that's you know experience you can't pay for and that was week after week over the entire summer yeah um, the one thing that people don't necessarily associate five star with in the younger generations now that want a part of it was just how gritty the camp actually was yeah I mean those courts are in Hampton Sydney Virginia Honesdale Pennsylvania Robert Morris Pittsburgh in the dead heat of summer and you're playing three games a day, you're doing two sets of stations a day. And these aren't like two sets of stations. Let's just show up and do ball handling drills for 20 minutes. This is like, you know, one-on-one post-ups against somebody six, four, 230 pounds. Yeah. Um, and the games were super, super competitive. It was, you know, the camp was run not only like a machine, but just the right way. The coaches evaluated the players. They had a draft. The yeah. camp was five days long. You had a 12-game schedule. It wasn't like, let's get in, get the money, get out. It was just done the right way. Right. Um, I remember at Honesdale one summer, um, Coach Scott Adubato was not at the draft for the NBA. So he was coming the next morning, so I had to help draft a team for him. And I remember Tom Kachowski was there, you know, the legendary Basketball scout man yeah. the camp and in the country, you know. And he was helping draft the team. And, you know, everybody knew certain guys and nobody knew others. And, you know, I drafted, I remember Gerald Tenderson was on the team. And then there was another guard named Edwin Rios, who was the point guard at Miami. If you didn't know, Gerald Henderson went to Duke. Yeah. So you had Gerald Henderson, Duke, this kid, Eddie Rios from Miami, Brandon Walters, a uh, local product from Lincoln, from Seton Hall, um, another kid from North Carolina, Antoine Watson, who I bring to camp, who I thought was phenomenal. And then in the sixth round of the draft, I drafted some kid whose father I remember playing in the NBA. And go figure, Steph Curry. <laughs> Oh my God. I mean, 
that was the team that I put together for Scott Adubato at Five Star Camp. Oh my and God. I find it hard to, you'd find it hard to believe, but they lost in the semifinals. They didn't even make it to the championship. Wow. Maybe you should have been coaching. <laughs> I don't know that it would have made a difference. I mean, that it was just, but the energy at that place and, uh, you know, playing outdoor basketball yeah. eight hours a day, you know, if you told any kids these days, they would like laugh at the notion to do that. Right. Yeah. That's the part that, that I, I think people forget is now it's just all the AAUs are in these state of the art, basically airplane hangar type gyms, air conditioning, everything like the five-star camps were outdoors. As you said, for five days, all day in the brutal heat, like, and that's where all the, as you said, like all the best players went and they stacked up against each other. You have the legendary scouts like uh, Tom Kuchelski would literally write out his reports and then send them out to all the college coaches. And a lot of times how you played at five star in front of him was whether you got a scholarship or, or not. It was, it was kind of crazy to see what it yeah. was and then what it's like now. Yeah. And on top of it, the food, the Honesdale session, which is the premier session was done at, Camp Linmore, girls camp that had like 16 basketball courts. So when their summer was over, they'd have five star come in. Yeah. And the food that they served us was basically all the food that they didn't use from the camp. <laughs> so the food was even worse. <laughs> the bunks were completely emptied. Yeah. So you just walk in and the bunks were used for like eight, 11 year old girls for the whole summer. Now all of a sudden you have. 12, six foot nine kids, yeah, you know, crammed into a bunk. You know, it's it was a remarkable, remarkable, unforgettable experience the couple of years I had working there. That's awesome. So, after your, your, your time at five star basketball, you joined the staff as an assistant coach at Susquehanna University and you're back coaching college basketball. Just was that what was that overall experience like at Susquehanna? as you have racked up more uh, coaching experience under your belt? Sure. So I went to, it was clear to me that it was time to leave New York City. Five Star was not a place for, you know, year-round operations. Yeah. The landscape of the camp business was changing in that they were, they just stopped letting college Division One coaches come to the camps so that the sneaker companies could take over. Um and they suggested to me, like, hey, if you're going to be here, you've got to be a coach at college. You know, the first guy that offered me a job, they basically said, you should go take it. They offered to pay for my graduate school at Bucknell. Mm-hmm. Frank Marcinic hired me. And one of the things I did all year round for my time at Five Star was fly all over the country and go to high school games every day that I didn't have one myself at Collegiate or at John Jay. Yeah. And especially in the fall and spring, I would be at every AAU tournament, everywhere, Chicago, special events, you name it, I was there. It was, I mean, I got to see so many talented kids and just, you know, introduce myself to the coaches and invite the kids to camp. And at the time, it was just to recruit the best players to come to Five Star. But at the end, when I started my left Five Star, I had this Rolodex and cell phone with just about every high school coach in the country that yeah. had a real program. <laughs> you know? So when um, the coach of Susquehanna came, the team was coming off of its like worst season ever. They were three and twenty-one. Oh boy! And I was all excited. You know, I was young. I thought I was like a hot shot. Like 
you know, I knew nothing at the time. But, you know, he was really smart. He's like, let's watch some tapes. Here's some tapes of the games from last year. They had VHS tapes. I don't know if your audience knows what that is. <laughs> but I popped the tapes in, and he said, what do you think? And I said, I think this is terrible. There's nobody on the team that could play. We watched the, I like, you know, we ran through some of, like, the, the sets and, like, where guys were supposed to be setting screens, and nobody set a screen. You had a five-foot-six point guard that couldn't dribble. <laughs> and, like, a six-foot... 10 big kid who could play but that was really it yeah um and he's he said to me like all right go get some players and i really embraced that challenge um and i went out i was able to get a conference rookie of the year from harrisburg high school brian majors Mm -hmm. majorprep.com he's doing big things in the harrisburg area for the community grew up in a house with i think uh three brothers one of them's like an assemblyman the other's a policeman and he is a state trooper i should say and brian runs a huge motivational speaking lifestyle brand that's awesome basketball training business and i had him i was able to recruit the conference player of the year josh robinson Mm -hmm. um and between the two of them in addition to them, another six or seven kids. So the roster went from like 11 players the year before to like 18 the next year. I had like seven or eight kids come in and coach Marcinic had brought in two, two kids, one a division two transfer and, um, another six foot six wing who turned out to score like 1500 points still plays professionally today. That's and awesome. we built a tremendous, tremendous talented team that, you know, I think would have went on to, you know, compete for the champion, you know, Division Three championship. But unfortunately, our best player, Josh Robinson, who played at Drake, tore his ACL with like five or six games left in the season, oh. and that was it. Yeah. Um, Brutal. And we just lost in the tournament. But it was, I mean, I was driving to Philadelphia, Washington, every day, Virginia. A lot of fun recruiting and getting back into grad school. That's awesome. So a lot of the coaches who I've talked to on this podcast, after several years as being an assistant, uh, they leave their college and then they go to a different college to go be a head coach somewhere. That wasn't the case in your journey. You leave Susquehanna after three years and you go work in marketing for uh, the the then called the New Jersey Nets. Kind of what went in that decision to to leave coaching and and go into like a nine to five marketing job? Um, I had spent probably a year or a year and a half trying to get another job after Susquehanna. I had finished my graduate program at Bucknell, um, and I didn't stop looking. And every job that opened on d3hoops.com, I would apply for, apply for, apply for. I ended up getting one interview at Lackawanna, um, I think it's a junior college in Pennsylvania and the interview couldn't have gone better. I became a finalist and they were bringing me back and I was so confident I had the job. I had called up my friend from five star. He had a whole team for me to come and bring in, you know, uh, I had Mike to Michael Glover. Yeah. Um, Josh Spivey, all these kids that went on to play division one basketball, um, after their junior college experience. And he just said, 
my second interview didn't go as well as I would have hoped. The other guy came in, the assistant coach at St. Francis, got the job. I drove back to Susquehanna, didn't know what to do with my life, and it was just time to go home. I mean, I could have went back to Susquehanna, been an assistant coach another year, but it was just time, and I didn't have any other opportunities <clears throat> that were of interest to me mm -hmm. for a head coaching job, and I didn't want to bop around into the middle of nowhere to continue being an assistant coach. So I decided to come home, you know, made some phone calls. I was able to get a job in the ticket sales department okay. for the New Jersey Nets. So that was probably the toughest job I ever had. They paid you $8 an hour. Oh, boy. Plus anywhere from 2 to 5% commissions on your ticket sales. So if I could set the scene for you at the time, before they were the Brooklyn Nets, they were the New Jersey Nets, living, playing their games at the Meadowlands. Uh -huh. They had just, they basically, this was the season that they had just started going 0-17. <laughs> and had already announced that the following year they were moving to Newark. Yeah. So everybody in the North Jersey area that were local fans already had a problem with the team. Mm -hmm. And they were... 0-17, and I had to pick up the phone and trying to sell second-half season tickets. Oh, boy. Um, without, and we weren't given a computer. We were given uh, note cards and a pencil. And, you know, it was just a real, real challenge to sell. But, you know, part of, uh, you know, sales is the lifeblood of any organization. And yep. I certainly learned that working for the New Jersey Nets. So, as you're working for the Nets, was that kind of when oh, the... Excuse I, me. Oh. So, after the ticket sales, I was one of the... I was the leader in the ticket sales category, which earned me a full-time job in the marketing department. Mm -hmm. So, that was my first time at age 30 where I was able to make over $35,000 a year. Okay. And I learned how to market from an NBA organization, which was... You know, just like five star, an invaluable experience. So, as you're working for the Nets coach, was that kind of when the idea for basketball stars first came to you? And just how did you decide to leave, you know, a stable, if not, you know, super exciting, stable job, but to go out on your own and, and to start your own company? Well, it was, it was a pretty stable job for most of the run, but, um, I had been gravitating more and more towards the court while I was working there in the marketing department, like coming up with initiatives and assisting in initiatives that dealt with like interviewing the players, getting to watch the end of practice, and ended up volunteering for a youth basketball program where I was able to coach some of the best players in the New York City private schools. And that's when I kind of knew I really wanted to get back into coaching. Mm -hmm. And you know, I was... I was not very talented at all in marketing for the Nets when I was there. I was more of really an intern because I had no experience, but it was a full-time job and I had earned it and it just was teetering on its way out. I needed to find something else to do and this kind of gave me a breath of fresh air um, to get back into coaching, volunteering for that team while I was working there. And then as soon as that season ended, I can... Um, tell you that one of my jobs for the Nets was filling out the rosters of the Nets and their opponents 
Uh-huh. So it would go into the pro. It would go into the program. Now I can tell you, as these games started going on, the Nets went came moved into Newark. You know their fan base was nothing. We were giving tickets away, and I had to put this piece together. And I put in the roster for the Nets, and then I went to the Nuggets website, and I put their roster in, and it was right as Mikhail Prokhorov had bought the team. And I had somehow Googled and landed on the Nuggets roster from the season before. And I passed that on to my boss in marketing. And, you know, he approved it without me seeing it, without really looking into it. Mm. And sure enough, the Nets Nuggets program had the wrong roster. So that was the beginning of the end. (laughs) I didn't get uh, let go. But, you know, after meeting with HR, it just felt like it was time to move on. Yeah, and I was able to, uh, you know, my at the time I had also been given responsibilities to run NBA player clinics with the Nets, you know, for their outreach programs in Brooklyn and New Jersey, helping them in that. So mm-hmm. for like one day clinics at high schools, and then my wife had said to me, you know, if an NBA franchise trusts you to run a clinic for them with an NBA player. What do you need them for? You're right. working 80 hours a week. You're not making any money. Like you can do this without them. Yeah. And that's when I decided to launch Basketball Stars. So, so you start your own company, Basketball Stars of New York. Just what were those early days like for you when you were trying to build name recognition and just trying to get kids to to come to your programs? So it um. It, it worked. It worked. The timing of it lined up real nicely. I had uh, just finished. The net season was just about over. I had maintained a business that I had created while I was a five-star, visiting sleepaway camps and running five-star clinics within their sleepaway camp, which had uh, the demographics of a lot of New York City private school kids. So through those clinics, I was able to support myself through the summer, mm-hmm. made good money doing it with all the leftover T-shirts as five-star was just about to be sold. So I had, you know, a few thousand T-shirts. I was able to save ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 over that summer and went some gyms in the fall um, so I could start a program. And it, it really just started with doing some one-on-one training with kids in the park at the local uh, JCC. The parents really enjoyed it. The kids loved working with me. I had a great rapport with a bunch of them. My client base grew, it developed into programs, and everybody was all into travel teams, so I decided to coach a travel team. One team became four, and then we were uh, off and running, but there was no secret sauce. It was just communicating with parents, building relationship with kids, and word of mouth took it away from there. So in the summer of 2013, you get hired to be the head coach at your alma mater, the Dwight School. And now all of a sudden, you know, you're kind of working two full-time jobs. How did you go about uh, balancing your role and responsibilities with Dwight while also running your own company? Sure. So it was actually, um, the school had made it very easy for me. They had just built a brand new athletic center on 108th Street. And that's where the team would practice. And it was separated from the school. So there was no class in that building. Yeah. So I was able to 
have an office there. I ran basketball stars out of that office. And the school benefited from it because all my coaches that worked with me at basketball stars, whenever we'd have high school practice, they could play against the kids. Oh, wow. So our first great, our first teams at Dwight had five or six talented players. Yeah. And they were used to just rolling over the second team. Now, our first team was, you know, the small forward from UMass, the power forward from Colgate, a point guard from Seen Hall. And they competed with them every day. So the two really worked hand in hand and benefited both because these guys still wanted to work out. You know, they didn't have all the work all the time. And this gave them another outlet to keep playing. Right. So. And as you mentioned, that team was super talented uh, your first year. And it featured a, a pretty cool story uh, uh, as Pee Wee Kirkland's son, uh, Pee Wee Jr., was on the team. And you were his coach. This And the, the way that Pee Wee Sr. Uh, was your high school coach. Just what was your reaction knowing that you were going to coach Pee Wee Jr. and just really just the entire super talented team? Um, I was overly excited for the opportunity. But if I can paint it for you, I had Pee Wee Kirkland Jr., whose father, Pee Wee Kirkland, we discussed on this podcast. I had Kieran Hamilton, whose father, Kevin Hamilton, played for the Boston Celtics. And I had another young man named Rara Marthone, who was also a point guard. Yeah. And Kieran, Kiwi, and Rara all saw themselves as point guards, and they all really could have been point guards. And I had an NBA father, Kiwi Kirkland, my former coach, telling me, and Rara, who was the most selfless player on the team. And the three, I had three point guards, so it was a little overwhelming to manage you know, how this was all going to work. Yeah. But um, I did my best. I decided that there was no way the team could function without Pee Wee being the point guard. And I gave Kieran the green light to work on his offensive scoring abilities and don't stop shooting the basketball to get him to buy in, which wasn't easy and took a very long time. And Rara was just a selfless, hardworking kid. Yeah that would do anything. He was just a ball player. You know, it wasn't about a skill set here or there. He could do it all. Whereas, you know, Kieran was speed and shoot. Kiwi was handle and defend. And it all just worked. Yeah. It really did. It came together. I mean, we were 5-5 five and five to start the season. And I think we won like 22 out of 23 games. Mm-hmm. And one of those games, Coach, and what is, I think, one of the, the best rivalries in New York City high school basketball is the rivalry between Dwight and Collegiate, uh, both Upper West Side high academic high schools. And the Collegiate gym, when you guys play them, truly is standing room only. Like, And you got to be tall to, to see it because of that narrow entryway. You got to, you know, it's you have to get there plenty early if, if you want to get in. As you mentioned, And as we talked about, you coached at Collegiate. And in 2014, as you're going on this run, you face off against them in the state semifinals. Can you kind of just talk about what the rivalry is like between Dwight and Collegiate and just what it was like matching up with them in such a big game? Sure. So in the first 
60 or 70 years of the rivalry, Dwight would play collegiate the first night to open each other's season at collegiate. Yeah. Dwight had won, collegiate had won that game and opening night for like 70 straight years. <laughs> Dwight had never beaten collegiate at collegiate. My first game at Dwight, my second game, we, we had uh, one before it. We go to collegiate. We're 1-0. and and Collegiate beat us 93 to 49. Oh, my God. And I looked at the, I felt really good about the game in, like, the second quarter. It was 27-21. We were, like, down six. One of our players went up for a rebound. Their player went up for a rebound. He ended up going over our player's back and somersaulted forward. And they called a, a flagrant foul on our player. When the kid landed, somebody went to go help him up. Somebody pushed somebody. And it was one of those circumstances where Collegiate got six free throws, you know, two because they were in the bonus. Yeah. Two for the flagrant, two for the technical, and the ball. And they hit a three after it. So they went from being up six to up 15 in one possession. Oh, it was like a nine point <laughs> possession. And, um, I remember looking at the scorebook after, and they, they, every single kid on their roster had scored. Oh, my God. And we had 49 points, and playing them in the state semifinals, I mean, we were a completely different team. Yep. But still, I mean, this is a team that beat us by 35. It wasn't like overcoming, you know, a bad game. But uh, 35 is a tough one to overcome, and our boys played perfectly. So one thing, Coach, that is unique about you and just the Basketball Stars AAU program is that it's filled with guys who play in the same league that that you coach in at Dwight. We matched up my sophomore year of high school in a great back-and-forth game that uh, you guys ended up winning by three. Just what is it like coaching against the guys who play for you in the spring and summer? I don't get to do as much of the coaching anymore myself, but um, so much of what basketball is in my life is about the experience and the relationships. And, you know, as you get older, I think most people, most ball players recognize that. So those actual competitions and those games were fun. Mm -hmm. It actually got a little funky because sometimes um, we would lose a game and I would be happy for the other kids. Yeah which goes against every, you know, fiber in my body. When I start, I first started coaching, I didn't have any appreciation for children or basketball players. I wanted to, I first got into coaching because I loved the competition and I missed the competition. It wasn't until I started working with seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven 11 year old kids that I started to love to work with kids. And mm-hmm. as they grew up, I started to really have an appreciation for them more so. It, it was fun. You know, it was fun to game plan against them, um, fun to participate in those games and joke around with them. Yeah. I, I never pretend I'm coaching at the NBA level when, you know, there's, you know, jobs at stake here. It's, for me, it's enjoyable. Right. So so that kind of brings me to, to my next couple of questions, Coach. You're one of probably the most laid-back guys that I know, probably one of the most laid-back coaches in the city. 
even in incredibly high stress environments, you know, I remember when, when we were doing our AAU summers with all the college recruiting, you were as you expressed a laid back demeanor that that I know made me more calm about your you know, you're playing games in front of a lot of coaches. Just how do you stay so laid back and at least seemingly so relaxed in a lot of high stress environments? Um, when you're, you're a part of it for that long, you know, you're coaching basketball for 15 years and you're coaching AAU and you're just a part of so many games. When you just focus on the kids and the experience you're having, there's really no reason to do anything but enjoy it. And, um, one of the people that I've read the most often as I was much younger when I was in my late 20s early 30s and really started to get into coaching I spent a lot of time reading Phil Jackson and his books and so much of them were about just staying in the moment and not worrying about tomorrow or yesterday but you know when you're playing basketball you should be focused on that second that next movement and not letting anything get bigger than it is Mm -hmm. and and I can't say that thought stays with me all the time, but, <laughs> you know, you go home to your family, it's a different feeling than a season ending when you're right. a player. So. Very true. UB uh, Brown, the legend from Five Star, when I first decided to get into coaching, when I went to the coaching clinics, he had said something like, coaches see through all the bullshit if you're not yourself. So that's just kind of who I am. So if I'm full of shit and I'm talking to the kids and they see through it right they're going to look at me a certain way so it's not my college scholarship on the line it's theirs (laughs) (laughs) so you guys beat collegiate in that semifinals game you go on you beat riverdale in the championship you're a nice state championship your first year you're coming back the next year a lot of times coach they say that repeating is sometimes harder than than winning it the first time you bring back Ra Ra, uh, point guard, one of my favorite AAU teammates, and Jeremy Bonifacio, super talented, bouncy, six foot six forward. Just as you were approaching that, that second year coming off that championship, how did you keep your guys motivated and, you know, getting ready to go on another championship run? You know, we were not the most talented team my second year coaching. My first year, we probably were. Yeah. But, um, or at least right there, neck and neck. My second year, we were not that good. Uh, we were not that talented, and the kids knew it. And we had played against um, Lamont Manhattan Prep at the time, led by former Hamilton head coach legend Tom Murphy's son. Mm-hmm. And they had beaten the pants off of us the first time we played them. Then they came to our building, and we tried to hang with them, and it got away from us and we lost by like 24 and the next day or two I brought the kids in because you know they felt like the year was well it wasn't over that it was just unwinnable I put them in a circle I said do you think it's possible you can beat this team and we just kind of went around and go I was like it's not happening there's no way I scored 25 Rara had 20 and we still lost by 20 like I can't score 50. And I said, all right, well, I'm glad you feel that way. I hope you don't accept it because I don't, and we're going to find a way to beat these guys. Yeah. And we were lucky enough 
to play them in um, our league championship game a third time in the league tournament. Not all high school leagues have a league tournament, but we did. And I don't know that we were second place in our league, but we ended up making the championship game and playing them in it. And we were right there with them. We lost by, ended up losing by like nine or ten points. But yeah. you could feel that our kids gave it everything to win. And Lamont didn't crack. They were better than us. But we were pretty close. And then a week later, we had a plan for a fourth time. They'd beaten us three times, twice by over 25, once by like 50. And the day before it, my daughter was born, my only child. And we came back from the hospital the following day. The game was at 3 o'clock. I got home at 1.30. I wasn't going to go to the game. My wife's like, we're both going. She wanted to take my newborn baby girl there. I'm like, that's not happening. (laughs) And my dad was in town and everybody Mm. was going to the game. And my wife's like, just go, I'll be fine. And I drove down, got there like eight minutes before tip off, gave a little pregame speech. You know, basically, you know, put tears in my eyes and, you know, told the kids I loved them. They went out and we, we weren't winning early on, but we were right there. And at some point early in the fourth quarter, I think we took the lead for maybe the first time since like early in the game. And it was a steamroll from then on. Once our kids knew that we could win the game. Yeah. They were just. You know, like Rottweilers unleashed in Le Mans. They just looked over. They were complaining to the referees. They were whining. You know, how is this possible? And it was special. That was by far the most special game I've been a part of. You guys go on after being Le Mans in that semifinals. You go on to beat Collegiate in the championship. And all of a sudden, you're back-to-back champions. And after that year, you get named by the New York Daily News as the Manhattan Boys Basketball Coach of the Year. Obviously, a huge and awesome accomplishment. Did that? Did did your success uh, help grow basketball stars and, and kind of help make basketball stars more and more successful as well? Um, I, I don't know that it did anything for our program. You know, mm-hmm. basketball stars is you know first and foremost the coaches that work for it, and yeah. then uh, customer service that I feel I provide and the oversight to make sure that we have good people working with the kids. But, you know, it was definitely um, really self-gratifying. Like, I felt like I had a self, I had a real sense of accomplishment and that, you know, sometimes as a coach you win and, you know, the kids do everything and they're just better and that's the way it goes. Right. And sometimes you feel like you're a part of it. And that season I really felt like, you know, I had a lot to do with our success. Um and it just felt really special. And, you know, beating Collegiate again, you know, knocking them out in back-to-back years, beating them in the regular season for the first time at their place that year was another thing that was, you know, tremendous. And they had some team that year where we beat them twice. You know, one of the yeah. kids is at Stanford now. I mean, they, they were really, really yeah, good. Yeah, Cormac Ryan, yeah. And... And kind of as you mentioned, you bring me to one of my last questions, your coach. One of the many, many great things about basketball stars is the coaches. They're all former uh, high major college players. 
uh, and almost all of them played some level of professional basketball, and they all love and have a passion for working with kids and, and helping kids get better at basketball. Just how do you go about hiring these coaches for your program, uh, and and just what makes a good basketball stars coach? Um, you know, it's funny. All of our coaches have really come from other coaches. You know, nine out of ten of them over the years. Um, so it's not like there's a special, you know, uh, website we use. It's, you know, the guys that I've hired off of, like, monster.com don't normally pan out. It's the relationships yeah. that our guys have. Um, some of our best coaches, the one thing that they all have in common is, you know, something that we talked about earlier. You know, everyone that walks in the door has a love of basketball that works right. for us. But the ones that have a love for, you know, being around kids and being a part of their lives and developing those relationships, those are the special ones. And mm-hmm. those are the ones that really, really, you know, excel. They would do it for free. Right. So, obviously, Coach, as, as we get to my last question before we get to some fun ones at the end, obviously through your job at Basketball Stars and Dwight, you interact with and and coach a lot of different players of a lot of different ages and the things that eight-year-olds need to work on to improve is a lot different than let's say a a 15 or a 16-year-old. As we're now firmly in the southern, uh, the the southern months, as we're recording this on uh, on June 18th, when players or parents come to you and say, you know, hey, I want to make my high school team, how do I go about doing that? Just what are the things that, that you would encourage some, some young players out there to work on this summer? they got to work on the court and on their body. Um, you know, the ex- our coaches provide a great experience for the kids, but the reality is the kids have to put in time. Mm-hmm. You know, if you give a kid a jump rope and a basketball, he doesn't need much more to get better. Um, just needs to put the time in. Right. So, you know, I'd encourage them to grab a jump rope, jump some rope, do some push-ups, work on their handle, and find a buddy to shoot with that can rebound. For sure. Well, Coach, I appreciate all the time. As, as we get here to, to the end, I have five rapid-fire questions to end the podcast. Great. Let's go. Number one, what is your favorite drill as a coach? Partner shooting. Partner shooting. Okay. Do you have any pregame superstitions? I don't have any pregame superstitions, but at halftime of games that my daughter's at, she gives me a Gatorade. She's five years old, and she runs to the court. That's awesome. What is your biggest coaching pet peeve? Something that I've had a lot of challenges with, with my teams in particular, which really annoy me is having the ball with no shot clock on at the end of a quarter. Uh-huh. not getting the last shot and finding a way for the other team to score. Because whenever you take that bad shot with seven seconds left on the clock or 14, the other team, for some reason, always seems to hit some crazy running one-hander, get right. foul, you know, put a big man getting a second or third foul. So I'd say that's my biggest pet peeve. Okay. You have a, a piece of advice uh, to anyone who is thinking about starting their own company. I'd say do what you love, love what you do. It's advice my mother gave me. No matter what you choose to do, if you love doing it, you're going to be successful. 
Okay, that's a good one. And and our last question, this one comes from our mailbag from a, from one of our loyal listeners. I don't know if this is possible, Coach, but can you describe Josh Brownridge in three words? Yes, I can. I just want to make sure I pick the right three words because you can't really. You got to go three for three here. <laughs> uh, lovable, empathetic, and heavy-footed. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Coach. That that was a great answer. So, one, I, I appreciate all the time. Uh, hope you're enjoying your time in Aruba. As always, on the double double, we give the last word to the, to our coaches. Do you have anything you want to shout out or say to the to the great people of the Dwight School community in uh, in New York City? I just wanted to thank you for putting me on this podcast. I'm a loyal listener and look forward to seeing where this goes along with yourself and your future. It's a bright one, and um, I'm happy to be a part of it. I appreciate I appreciate it, Coach. If if we have football in the fall, you'll be back talking football, and I can't wait. Yeah, I got plenty of more funny anecdotes to share you that I feel like we missed, but uh, <laughs> there'll be a time and a place. One hundred percent. This is not the first podcast, so appreciate it, Coach. I don't think we can end the podcast without at least mentioning the name of Matt Starr. Yes, I it's... feel like that would be right. highly inappropriate not to at least give Matt Starr a, a shout out. How would you describe him in him in three words, if it's possible? Of course, of course. I would say uh, chemistry, distracted, and happy. Those are those are three great Big words. Team chemistry guy, yep. always distracted with his mind on something else, and a happy guy to be around. One hundred percent. I guess it's not good. 100%. Good enough if I have to describe what each of those means. <laughs> all right, Coach. Appreciate all the time. Looking forward to you coming back on this fall and hopefully talking some talk some football with us. Sounds good. That'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. You can also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care and make it a great day.